Let's pray today. Lord God, we are ever mindful that anytime we open up your word, whether it be in the middle of the book or at the beginning or the end, the Lord, we need your spirit to awaken. We need your spirit to awaken our minds. We need your spirit to illuminate our minds. We need your spirit to illuminate our hearts that we might be capable of not only discerning, but Father, applying and Lord, rejoicing over the truths that we find in your word. Lord, I pray that as we embark upon this new book from the Bible, that, Lord, your spirit would do a mighty work in your people here at Riverside. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be changed as a result of this. That, Lord, as we consider you and your grandeur in this book, that, Father, we would be awakened, not just to how special and wonderful you are, but, Father, to the great calling that you have given to us, Father. And that we would see this world and the people of it, Father, from a fresh perspective. And that, Lord, it would motivate us to be goers and senders and sharers, Father, witnesses to your Son, King Jesus. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. The book of Jonah is not about a fish. <laughs> Though Jonah's great fish has certainly made the book famous even beyond Christian circles, the fish is actually only mentioned in three of Jonah's 48 verses. The book of Jonah is also not about Jonah, nor is it about the sailors on the boat, nor is it about the Ninevites. They are more like the canvas upon which the skilled painter paints. You see, the book of Jonah is ultimately about the unbridled compassion of the one true God. It is a historical narrative which teaches us about the incredible scope of God's mercy as he graciously deals with a rebellious prophet, as he graciously deals with some idolatrous mariners, as he shows his mercy to a most evil enemy, and even as he is compassionate with a bitter believer. There are two places in this book, I think, which show the character of God that Jonah seeks to illuminate for us here in this book. And I want you to look with me. If you have your Bible, it's open. Look at Jonah chapter 2 and verse 6 with me. Jonah chapter 2 and verse 6. It says, I went down. Excuse me, I'm looking at the. Yes, I, chapter 2 verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. While Jonah is in the pit of the fish, when things seem as bad as they can possibly get, he says, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. In other words, he gets a display of God's compassion that he did not deserve. Now look at one more place. Look over at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. It says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
So though Jonah had received the compassion of God, Jonah ran from God because he didn't want God's compassion to be shown to a certain group of people. And even at the end of the book, he's bitter towards God because God is the God who shows compassion. Oh Lord, through this book, let us behold your unbridled compassion for your people. Let us announce it. Let us embrace it. Let us exult in it, Lord, that you might be magnified in the people of Riverside. Today, we are going to consider the first two verses of the book of Jonah. Just two verses. But to help us prepare for this book, which we're going to look at over the next four or five weeks, let me explain four pieces of information with you that I think are important. First of all, though Jonah is a book, I think that we're going to see as we go through it, that's all about the great mercy of God. It also presents a number of important themes that we're going to be able to touch on and connect to God's compassion and mercy. For instance, the book touches on racism and nationalism. As Jonah acted in accordance with his preconceived notions of who the people of Israel were, who the Ninevites were in light of their opposition to Israel, and his idea of what divine justice was supposed to look like. The book of Jonah, of course, also famously touches on missions and evangelism, as God sent his prophet to a people who desperately needed to hear his message. Obedience to God, as well as trusting in God's wisdom, are similarly key to the presentation of this book, as Jonah is asked to follow God's word in faith. And no doubt about it, God's sovereign control of all things is paramount throughout this entire book of Jonah, as when he used a fish to swallow up his prophet, preserving his life and teaching him a lesson at just the right time. The second piece of information about the book of Jonah is that it is marked by two parallel incidents that force us to consider two types of rebellion. Two parallel incidents that force us to consider two types of rebellion. That first type of rebellion is outright disobedience. And the second type of rebellion is Pharisaic self-righteousness. Pastor Tim Keller in his excellent little book, his little commentary on Jonah entitled Rediscovering Jonah, the Secret of God's Mercy, he argues strongly that Jonah actually runs from God not once, but twice in two important scenes which parallel each other in this book. Now, I want us to see this briefly together. We're going to see this as we go forward, but I want us to see this briefly together. If you have a physical copy of the Bible with you, hold one finger here in Jonah chapter 1, and then hold another finger in Jonah chapter 3. We're going to flip back and forth really quick here in just a second. And consider two very similar scenes which put the book almost on repeat. In chapter 1, verse 1, God's word came to Jonah. In chapter 3, verse 1, notice... God's word, again, came to Jonah. In chapter 1, verse 2, flip back, a message was to be conveyed. Over in chapter 3, verse 2, a message was to be conveyed. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah responds to God. He flees. In chapter 3, 
verse 3, Jonah responds to God and he goes. In chapter 1, verse 4, God brought a warning. In chapter 3, verse 4, God again brought a warning. In chapter 1, verse 5, the pagans responded. In chapter 3, verse 5, the pagans responded. In chapter 1, verse 6, the pagan leader responded, a captain. In chapter 3, verse 6, the pagan leader responded, a king. In chapter 1, verses 7 through verse 16, the pagan's response was better than the prophet Jonah's response. In chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, the pagan's response was again better than the prophet Jonah's response. In chapter 2, flip a little forward, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, God taught grace to Jonah through a fish. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, God taught grace to Jonah through a plant. What God is showing us is that through these two scenes, there are two forms of rebellion against him. The first is an outright rebellion, which refuses to obey his word, such as when Jonah fled from God. The second is self-righteous rebellion, the kind that the Pharisees displayed in the New Testament, and the kind that Jonah displayed in chapter 4, which refuses to prize God's kindness for the worst of sinners. Now we're going to see more about these as we go forward. Third, the book of Jonah has a few items of historical context which we should note. We actually don't know who wrote the book of Jonah, though it is certainly about Jonah, the prophet of Israel, as we're about to see. Nor are we exactly sure when it was written, though many conservative Old Testament scholars make, I think, a pretty strong case for its writing sometime in the years prior to Israel's exile from the land. Likely, this book of Jonah is set in the early to mid-8th century, meaning sometime between 800 to 750 B.C., so a, a very long time ago. Because that was when the prophet Jonah walked on earth and performed his ministry. Now, as for these Ninevites, the Ninevites, these citizens of Nineveh, which was the capital city of ancient Assyria, the ruins of which can be found just across the river from the northern Iraqi city of Mosul. Well, we're going to learn more about these Assyrians as we go forward and their wicked ways. The fourth piece of information about the book of Jonah that we must grasp is that Jonah, the events surrounding Jonah and the great fish, ultimately points us to Jesus, the better Jonah, because of his deathly grave in his powerful resurrection. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. He said, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, we're going to see more about this as we go forward in the book, how this should point us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as we turn to chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1, I want to make two points from these first two verses regarding the unbridled compassion of God. 
Number one, God had a message for sinners. And number two, God sent his messenger to sinners. Look at verses one and two with me. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The Lord spoke from his compassion. God had a message for sinners, and here now he speaks from his compassion. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This book begins with God speaking to a prophet. Now, no motivation is yet given for why he spoke, but God chose to reveal his will here to his prophet that it might be conveyed to a certain people. Now, my friends, this should not be something that we quickly glance over before moving on to a larger narrative. Rather, we should stop for just a moment and ponder the happy reality of this. That the holy God of all eternity, who created the world and everything in it, including all of its people, who has been sinned against by the very people who have been made in his image, and who would be right to simply judge the world and wipe the slate clean, chooses here instead to speak. And the word he chose to speak was one of immense value because it would lead to a shocking life transformation and a change of status, wherein enemies of God would actually find the compassion of God. The testimony of Scripture, my friends, is that God is both merciful and he speaks with astonishing mercy. The psalmist says in Psalm 86, verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and the south. Say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry with you forever. God speaks out words of mercy, and he does so here. Now understand, God's message was for an evil people. This message of mercy was not for those who you would have liked. This message of mercy was not for those who were kind. This message of mercy was not for those who anyone in this world would consider to be good people. In verse 2, God says of the people of Nineveh, their evil has come up before me. They haven't just performed some normal types of evil. Their evil has such a stench that it has come up before the face of God. Literally, it has come before my face in the original Hebrew. He can see it. He can smell it. He knows of it. God saw the way, the, the heinous way that the Ninevites were living, and it was so vile that disaster would soon come their way from the hand of the Lord if they failed to repent. The Ninevites who likely served as a representation for all of the Assyrians in that day, were the people in and around the capital city of ancient Assyria, think modern-day Iraq area, modern-day Syria area, and they were known for their horrible atrocities against other nations. They were a mighty empire who used terrible violence in their acquisition of new territory, striking fear and hatred in every land that they conquered. 
Pastor Tim Keller, he provides a succinct account of how they approached their conquests. And I'll warn you that this description is not one for the faint of heart. He writes, After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so that they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so that they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been called the terrorist state. Now, I don't quote that to shock you or to be grotesque. I quote that because if you see the grievous nature of this people, you'll then begin to understand the wide extent to the mercy of God. These are the people to whom God wanted a message sent. And realize, God's message implied the opportunity to repent. He commanded Jonah in verse 2 to call out against it. Now that may not seem like compassion. It may not seem like mercy and grace. No one likes to hear words of accusation and judgment, and such words don't certainly don't seem very merciful, at least not when they're first heard. But understand, in verse 3, Jonah flees for a reason. Because he knows that God's word of judgment carries with it the possibility of repentance and even forgiveness for these Ninevites. He knew that God was merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And therefore, Jonah knew that God might instead show compassion to Israel's enemies. You see... When God gives a warning, it's actually a mercy. When God gives a warning, it's actually a mercy. If he said nothing at all and simply judged something he is most righteous to do, there would be no mercy. But the very fact that God speaks out against the Ninevites reveals his willingness to relent upon the condemnation that was coming their way. Now, we may not like Stop signs. It didn't. <laughs> All right, well, just, I'll just broadcast a little bit. We're fine, Drew. We're fine. Um, I'm just going to broadcast out. Can you hear me back there, Frank? Okay. Well, the very fact that God speaks out against the Ninevites reveals his willingness to relent upon the condemnation that was coming their way. We might not like stop signs in our life. None of us like to have the stop lights. We don't like to wait for them. But they're actually very good because they manage traffic and they protect lives. And we may not like to hear God's righteous warning of judgment. But it might just be the message that he uses to drive us to his mercy and to his goodness. King David, a great king and a great sinner, clearly saw goodness in the warnings of God's word. Speaking of the law of the Lord, David wrote in Psalm chapter 19, verse 11, Moreover, by them, meaning God's word and the law, 
your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. When David looked to the word of God, he saw things that warned him and things that kept him unto a great reward. God's warnings even are a blessing to God's people. They provide guardrails which give us wisdom for right and wrong in life. Well, God's message to Nineveh corresponds to his message for sinners today and for all days. Nineveh is just a microcosm of the universal human condition towards God. All people, even those who have never performed the wicked deeds of the Assyrians, have an evil bent towards the God who made us. We have all held out a rebellious stiff arm against the one who fashioned us. The Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament by expounding on this idea with a very vivid description of the human condition against God. He writes in Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 10, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he gets descriptive. He says this, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, or snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We are, a, we are a broken, rebellious people, each and every one of us. It began in the Garden of Eden, and it prevails even today in the hearts of all of his created people in his image. This is the status that we are all in. Not just Ninevites, but those who live in Newport Ritchie, Florida. We may not have committed the same heinous deeds as Nineveh, but we have all heinously rebelled against the one true God, just like Nineveh. And with this, we have to realize that God's word of judgment over sin is vital for true repentance unto a changed heart. As sinners, my friends, we have to understand that we are, first of all, sinners, and that we are deserving of his judgment if we are ever to repent of those sins and actually be saved from our sins. That's interesting. Paul wrote earlier, excuse me, later in that chapter in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he said, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I memorized that verse as, as a little boy. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice, the life eternal in Jesus Christ comes after the word about the wage of death. You must understand the wage of your sin, which is death, before you can grasp the gift of life which is found in Jesus. Therefore, the message of God must never be sugar-coated. God never tells Jonah to go to them with a sugar-coated message. He goes to them and tells them that they're evil and that his condemnation is coming. As the good news about Jesus can only be properly grasped when the bad news about us is clearly and vividly communicated. But with this, please understand that there is a message of salvation today. There is a hope for sinners, no matter what day they are in. If sinners will repent of their sins, 
and embrace the Savior Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again to pay for our sins, the one to whom Jonah and his act with the fish symbolize. If we will look to Jesus Christ in faith, turning from our sins, we will be saved. And God will be compassionate. He will show his mercy. And we will not face his condemnation. Which is why Paul says a couple of chapters after what I just read, there is no condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. There is a message of mercy and compassion and grace that is found in the Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's our first point. God sent a message. Second point this morning, God sent his messenger to sinners. God sent his messenger to sinners. The Lord God... He called up one of his prophets for a compassionate task. It says in verse 1 that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, we don't know a lot about Jonah, but we do know a little. Mainly what we know we have found in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, where it likely refers to the same prophet who is the subject of the book of Jonah. If you want to turn to 2 Kings 14, you're welcome to. Otherwise, just listen. I'm going to read 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 26. And I want you to catch what this says about Jonah and what he's commanded by God to teach and preach and share in that text. 2 Kings chapter 14, 23 to 26, it says this. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah... Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who is from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. So from this, here's what we know about the prophet Jonah, assuming that this is the same prophet Jonah. Jonah was the son of Amittai stated here in Jonah chapter 1 and stated in 2 Kings chapter 14. He's the son of Amittai, who is a guy who is completely unknown in Scripture other than in those two references. And we know that Jonah was from the city of Gath-Hefer, which was likely uh, near the city uh, or near the region of the Sea of Galilee up in the northern part of the land. His ministry was performed under the evil king Jeroboam II. It gets a little bit confusing in Israel's history because there's a couple of different Jeroboams. This is Jeroboam II of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel and Judah had split. It was now two nations. The northern kingdom is who he prophesied to. And Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But the Lord was still acting graciously to Israel in that day due to the promises that he made to them. Even though their king was wicked, he was still acting graciously to them. And Jonah in that day of Jeroboam II was given a word from the Lord to direct King Jeroboam to advance his army and to restore Israel's previously lost border to the south all the way to the Sea 
of Arabah. So Jonah's message first given to him by God was to go tell his king, hey, get on your horse, go advance, we're going to restore some land. That was his message. So what we can deduce is that Jonah was a man of God who spoke the word of God and likely, this is where we're likely saying, he likely was a rather patriotic fellow <coughs> as he was talking with his king urging him to wage war and advance his army against enemies and to conquer back some lost territory. So understand, this man Jonah, who previously was given a word by God to unleash Israel's might upon its enemies, was now being sent by God directly to Israel's enemies. The one who was told, go tell your king to wage war against your enemies, is now being told, take this message to these enemies. God sent his prophet to the enemy. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. This is the language of command, friends. God is not leaving room here for options for Jonah. Jonah has been commanded here by God to go to the Ninevites. And of this, I think we can make one safe guess as well as one certain statement about what was going through Jonah's mind at this point. The safe guess that I think we can make is that this would have been terrifying to this man of God. Think for a moment. After all, can you imagine being sent to an enemy city? You're a foreigner, you're a Jew, and you're going to the Ninevites nonetheless, and with the kind of message that Jonah was told to bring them. That's the safe guess. Here's the certain statement. Jonah was concerned over what the eventual result of this might be. And we can be certain about this because Jonah tells us this later on in chapter 4, what we already read. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew. He just knew what God was going to do because he knew the character of God. And he didn't want God's character to be shown to anybody else but Israelites. So he doesn't want to go. Well, we're going to consider more about Jonah's heart in later sermons. But for now, just understand that he was commanded to go to those who hated him, to those whom he himself, I'm guessing, hated with a message from God. God's messenger was to herald God's message. Notice verse 2. He was to call out against it. Call out against it. This word call out in the Hebrew is the word kara, and it does not refer to a mere conversation, nor does it refer to a word that is whispered. Kara carries the meaning of proclamation, like when a medieval herald came into a city square blew his trumpet, and then loudly announced, I have a message from the king. Jonah was to herald God's message to the Ninevites. He was to enter into the city of Nineveh, the city of his enemies, and herald to them the message from God himself, the king of heaven. And this is exactly what he would eventually do in chapter 3 after the whole ordeal with the fish. It says in chapter 3, verse 4, that he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
God's message to Nineveh corresponds to his messengers today as well. Jonah was given a call that is very similar to God's people on this side of the cross. Our king, King, J king Jesus, who has commanded us over the cross, who has conquered the cross for us and now commands us, in this command he has commissioned us to obey him in something. He's conquered sin, he's conquered death, he's conquered hell for us through the cross, and now King Jesus, he now commands us. He gives us a commission. Now we saw this not that long ago, I think, in Matthew chapter 28, where it says in verse 18 that Jesus came and said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God's word came to Jonah, told him to go and to share, to herald his message. God's word comes to his people in the church and says, go and herald my message. We look at Jonah and we think, well, how can you disobey God like that? Look in the mirror. How can you disobey God like that? Just as Jonah was expected to obey, we are expected to obey. We go to the Ninevites all around us with the message from the king that we are to herald, to broadcast. God's messengers are to broadcast his message boldly and compassionately to all people, even to our opponents. And that's what's key here in this whole book. It's not just to the people we like. It's to our opponents that we are to share this word. And this, I think, has special revelation to gospel preachers who are commanded by God not just to have a conversation with people or even merely to teach people, but who are commanded by God to herald the message of the gospel. It has special relevance and revelation to them because of second timothy chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 where paul says to timothy i charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching God's gospel ministers are to proclaim. They are to preach the word. Again, the word comes from God, and his proclaimers are then to proclaim. So if you're here today, and you've been given the task at times to preach, or perhaps you think, man, God may one day call you into that kind of a role, understand, your role is very clear, though very difficult. Your role is proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, as it is found from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Revelation chapter 22. We proclaim the word. So this has very important application as pastors sit down and look at the book of Jonah, but it also has relevance to all believers of all days, for we must all have beautiful feet as we go to all people with the gospel. Beautiful feet. It's an odd statement that Paul uses in Romans 10. He says this in verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We're to have beautiful feet. People who willingly go, who use those feet, metaphorically, to go to other people that we might announce to them what Jesus has done for them. This is not merely for the pastor or the pastor in waiting. This is for the Christian who sits no longer in pews, but in comfy chairs. This is for each and every one of us. We are to have beautiful feet as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jonah was commanded, and now Jesus commands us. In light of this, I want to challenge you to be his messengers in three areas this morning, and then we'll be done. First, be God's faithful messengers by making disciples within your own families. Let me begin with the testimony of my mom. My mom became a Christian early 30s, I would guess. Uh, I guess I'm not totally sure. Late 20s, early 30s. She already had a couple of kids. She became a Christian because another gal faithfully shared the gospel with her. And so my mom spent the next six to seven years praying for my dad in the evenings, she would have her Bible open. She would share with him a verse that she saw that amazed her. My dad would give her a little bit of a, that's nice type of a response. And then she would continue to pray for my dad. And then my dad brings in a couple of fellas, a couple of farm boys, trying to uh, convince him to believe in Jesus. My dad does a Bible study with these guys, and he embraces Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Why is my dad in glory in heaven today? He's there because those men shared the faith. He's also there because my mom faithfully prayed for him and shared the gospel with him. How many kids have come to know Jesus Christ because their parents faithfully invested in them with the word? They didn't just teach them life skills. They taught them eternity skills. They taught them about the Savior, Jesus Christ. They didn't take that responsibility and relinquish that and give it to a youth pastor or to a regular pastor or to anybody else, but they took it upon themselves to teach their kids the word of God that they might embrace Jesus Christ in faith. This is the first call. If we're going to be those who take the message to Ninevites, we have to take the message to the Ninevites who live right under our own roofs. Secondly, let us be God's faithful messengers by prayerfully seeking out and engaging in gospel conversations with the lost around us. We had 49 gospel conversations recorded through our church website in 2022. Some of those conversations that you had were with more than one person. So probably somewhere between 50 and 100 people heard the gospel as recorded by Riverside members through our church website. And that's a wonderful thing. Our people were sharing the gospel. Can I ask you to do that again? Can I ask you to again have gospel conversations with people and even go a step further? If you've already shared the gospel with a friend, with a family member, with a neighbor, now try to take the next step with them. See if they will do a Bible study with you. We got gobs of resources we can help you with if you need them. But go to someone who needs the gospel and share it with them. And here's why we want you to record it. Here's why we want you to go to our website and fill out the form. Because afterwards, we put in a list through an email and then mentioned in our prayer times the people who have been mentioned so that we can not only pray for that sinner that they would come to know Christ, but pray for you so that you would continue to be bold in sharing for them. 
It's not pride to announce that God has given you a gospel conversation. It's dependence upon God, recognizing that you need his people to pray for you. So continue to share and let us know about it. That's why we are doing it. Share the gospel with those around you. And then third and finally, be God's faithful messengers by committing to be either a goer or a sender. Every Christian is supposed to be one of those two people when it comes to worldwide missions. You're either a goer or you are a sender. If you're a goer, that means you sacrifice your money, your time, and your prayers to invest in those who are sent. If you're a sender, you invest your time, your energy, your money so that those who are goers can be supported. It's on you to do that. And if you are a goer, you are the one who actually gets the training. You're the one who actually gets the approval. You're the one who goes forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether it be somewhere nearby or to a foreign place to share the good news about the Lord. Every one of us is one of those two people. We've all been called, like Jonah, to be members in this participation of witnessing the gospel of Jesus Christ, though we have various roles within that command. So be faithful as God's messengers by committing to be either a goer or a sender. Now we're going to see a lot more. Hopefully this has just whetted the appetite in the book of Jonah. We're going to see a lot more about this as we go forward. For now, let's thank God for this time in his word. Oh Lord God, we rejoice that we have the privilege of being able to open up the Bible today. And that, Lord, we are not only comforted and encouraged by a display of your mercy, how vast and strong it is to go to even the worst of sinners, but, Father, we're also charged with the recognition that we have been tasked to take this message to the sinners around us, Lord. Lord, we desperately need your help in this. We ask that your spirit would enable us, Father, to not only be challenged, but, Father, to be empowered to go. And we pray this in Jesus' name.